0: And hello to you, and welcome to the Richard Nichols Podcast, the personal development podcast series that's here to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to be the best you can be. I'm psychotherapist Richard Nichols, and this is episode 156. It's titled What We Fight, We Invite. And if you're ready, we'll start the show. Happy Easter! If you're listening to this on the day that it comes out that is if so then today is not only April Fools' Day but it's also Easter Sunday a day of chocolate eggs sunday lunches and possible sickness and diarrhea for any unsupervised six-year-old that's been left too near their stash of chocolate good luck with that if that's uh, if that's in your life right now anyway how are you doing i haven't seen you for ages what's going on in your world <laughs> If I haven't seen someone for a while, they'll ask me that. And I tend to have this stock phrase of, oh, you know, same old, same old, work, rest and play and not much else really. And I think that's because, despite quite enjoying being the centre of attention, you know, I work in the theatre, I make this podcast, I present at conferences and things, but I don't really like talking about myself Maybe that's just habit. I'd much rather be talking about other people or listening to them talk about themselves. Maybe that's just because of my job being being a therapist. I'm not used to doing that much talking. So when I get the opportunity, you can't shut me up. But I still don't like talking about myself. So the old, oh, you know, work, rest and play quote seems to work quite well. But in fairness, apart from work, rest and play, what else is there? Most things fall into one of those categories. And I think in order to feel as if your life is going well, it's a matter of managing those three categories, work, rest and play, and making sure that you're not working too much. And when you're resting, you're not thinking about work because you might as well still be there if that's where your head is i said it before and I'll say it again, the brain doesn't know the difference between fact and fiction. If you're thinking about work, then your brain will activate neurons and strings of neurons as if you're actually there. Which is great if you need to prepare for something, a dress rehearsal, you know, doing something in advance, but not if you're in the middle of playing Monopoly with your kids. So we need to watch what we do with our thoughts, and not just when we're resting, but there's an annoying quirk... our brain that means we can easily be drawn towards the one thing that we're trying to avoid I'll give you an example anyone who either has children or works with them will know this but what happens if you tell a kid not to touch something they're going to touch it if they drop off out of the room and you say don't slam the door guess what the doors almost off its hinges and if you tell yourself not to panic guess what your heart rate's going to do? If you prepare for an interview by telling yourself, I won't stuff this up, I won't stammer over my words, I won't become a gibbering mess of sweat, then you're far likely to actually make that happen. That's just how the brain works. In order to not think about something... You have to actually think about it first in order to know what not to think about, and so your brain fires off those strings of neurons to prepare you for the exact thing you're trying not to make happen. Like walking back from a bar carrying a tray of drinks, going, I won't spill it, I won't spill it, I won't spill it, splash. When creating some sort of expectation, we need to ensure that the language we use stays positive. Instead of don't touch, say, leave alone. Instead of don't panic, say be calm. Don't plant the seeds for the things you fear. As I so often say, be careful what you look for, because you just might find it. But the problem is, the thing we fear will often be on our minds. I mentioned something similar a few months ago because of um, Valentine's Day, but if our biggest fear is that our partner is going to leave us, then evidence to support it is all that we'll see. If our biggest fear is a heart attack, then we'll become super sensitive to any changes that go on in our heart's rhythm. Okay, so fearing a heart attack isn't going to bring one on. But in many ways, what we're scared of will more than likely happen if that's where our focus is. Years ago, the psychologist Carl Jung said that what you resist not only persists, but will grow in size. And he was right. That concept is the same for so many things. We can't argue with reality. If you're stuck in traffic, there's no point in being angry about it. You won't get to your destination any quicker. But creating all the emotion when you are stuck means that when the traffic starts moving again, you've woken up neurological pathways in the brain for feeling angry and carry it with you as you drive angrily up the motorway. If you haven't already heard me go on about this enough, I'll remind you. Skills... Habits, routines, they're all the same process. The ability to make something that was conscious become unconscious, and that's done through repetition. That's how we learn. We can learn how to walk, how to talk, how to play the didgeridoo. But everything that we practice starts off consciously. We are aware that we're firing off neurons, or at least we're aware of what we're doing, but with enough repetition, These neurons become thicker, stronger and more efficient at transmitting the electrical signals that get passed from neuron to neuron so that they fire off outside of conscious awareness. The signals are too fast. Our conscious thoughts are pretty slow, really. Every magician who's good at sleight of hand will show you that. Because the hand is quicker than the eye, as they say. That's how come optical illusions exist. When it comes to making things conscious... Our brain is pretty slow and stupid in comparison to a a, a, a myelin-covered string of neurons that have turned what was a conscious thought into an unconscious one. And that's why someone who has a phobia of spiders will see more spiders than someone who doesn't. Because looking for spiders has become an unconscious skill. They've become so good at spider spotting that they can do it without trying. Because of this, they end up with a complex, because it seems that spiders must be out to get them, as if they're following them around, because no one else in their social circle is seeing them as often as they do. And that's not because these spiders aren't there for everybody else, it's because no one else is unconsciously priming themselves to find them. What we fight, we invite, you see? But although we might think of these skills as being hardwired in the brain, in reality... There's no such thing as hard wiring. Our brain is flexible, it's moldable for want of a better phrase. Well, actually, there is a better phrase. It's called neuroplasticity, but moldable sounds easier to understand, if you ask me. Basically it can change. We can learn and unlearn. It takes a while, but with practice, you can unlearn something that you thought was totally ingrained in you. You can forget how to ride a bike, actually. But it takes daily practice of riding a differently designed bike for, well, one guy suggested about eight months. Uh, Destin Sandlin, uh, an engineer who uh, runs a YouTube channel and a website, Smarter Every Day, he did exactly that. He got given a bike with a cog in its handlebars so that if you turn the handlebars left, the front wheel turned right, and vice versa. had to ride it for five minutes every day for eight months to learn how to balance properly. Although he did suggest after selling these these designed bikes to other people, some people can do it a bit quicker than than eight months, especially if they ride it a bit more often. Some people really go into it. It only takes a few hours. But with a majority of people doing something every day for a few months, you can eventually then learn how to do it differently. You learn how to balance properly. The thing is, because the process of riding the backwards bike is so entwined with riding a normal bike, he forgot how to ride a normal one. And the first time he rode someone else's, he he couldn't balance and had to practice for half an hour before his brain clicked that he needed to go back to the old way of thinking again and allowed him access to the skills that he'd been using all his life since he was six. The same goes, rather bizarrely, with our eyesight. You know, our world is upside down. Not in a Stranger Things or Jamie and the Magic Torch sort of way, but literally when you look at something, it is upside down to us. That's how our eyes eyes work. We've known that since the 1600s when René Descartes used a bull's eye to show how light hits our retina and the image it showed was inverted. That's how the world is supposed to look to us. But it doesn't, does it? Our brain switches it round for us to make it easier to process. And the first person to prove this, as far as we know anyway, might have been the Chinese, they were good at that, good at everything else, but in sort of our modern history, um, the first person to prove this was a psychologist called George Stratton in the 1890s. He made and wore a set of special glasses that flipped his vision upside down for eight days. And it took four days of wearing it and seeing the world upside down everywhere he went, before his brain gave in and went, oh, all right then, and flipped it back for him. Because on the fifth day, everything looked normal, even though he was wearing these upside-down glasses. And there's been loads of experiments done on animals, really, in the name of brain injury and stroke research, that shows that old phrase that I come back to so often, if you don't use it, you lose it. When it comes to old programming, such as looking for spiders, looking for an argument, looking to be the victim, it's worth spending some time looking for the opposite, deliberately. Look for reasons to feel happy, safe, respected, included, whatever it is. Because huge as our brains are, there's only so many skills we can possess. Unless they are cross-transferable skills, when you're learning how to do one thing there's a fair chance that something else has got to go. By practising optimism, you'll unlearn pessimism. By practising self-respect, you'll let go of shame or guilt. If you practise calmness, you'll find it harder to be angry. Rather than trying to fight the existing emotion, encourage a better one to take its place instead. It's the basis of what's often called in therapy ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. It used to be called uh, comprehensive distancing and was just a process, really, within uh, person-centred counselling, I think. But during the 1980s, the ideas behind it were formed into a specific branch of counselling and psychotherapy called ACT. The idea being that instead of resisting the negative emotions and avoiding situations that cause them, you accept that they exist. And open yourself up to experiencing these emotions as a better way a better way of understanding them. On the surface, it almost sounds like giving into it, though, and being hopeless. But rather than a defeatist attitude, the reason this helps is because by accepting what is, you put yourself in the best possible position to be able to do something about it. I can't reiterate enough that in order to improve your chances of getting what you want out of life... It's pointless dedicating your time and energy to resisting what you don't want. I know it might sound counterintuitive, but in the same way as it's impossible to not think about a pink elephant when someone tells you not to, what you need to do instead is focus your attention towards what you do want to embrace in life. And plan a course of action to make that happen, because the alternative means that you'll actually have made yourself part of the problem rather than the solution. Well, we need to say Terapha now because time is ticking on. Oh, we're going up to thirteen minutes. Enjoy your Easter, then, folks. And for those of you who celebrate Nowruz, the Persian New Year that marks the start of spring in the northern hemisphere, Navroz Mubarak, Happy New Year. Although that might be a week late, I quite like the idea of celebrating a new year on the day that we begin to get more sunlight. The the only downside to it is that it's um it's a different day depending on where you are in the Earth. So to all my Pacificas and Australasian listeners, I do have quite a few. It's the start of autumn, so happy autumn to you. Especially to Sarah in New Zealand, who's having to wait for my book to be posted all the way from the UK as it's not for sale there yet. I'll speak to the publishers about that, actually. I'm not sure what the deal is with overseas sales. I know it's being translated into Polish, Czechoslovakian and Vietnamese for sale over there, but not sure about the Southern Hemisphere. Leave it with me. And I'll find out, folks. If you enjoy this podcast series and would like more of what I do, then you've got a few options. You can obviously listen to all the previous free episodes on your podcast player or via the website. But you may uh, may as well um, already have done that. If so, you can buy the same amount again from the shop page on my website, richardnichols.net or motivateyourself.co.uk. They are both points to the same place at the moment for just a fiver. And if you want a, a deep dive and go old school, why not buy my book? Wherever you are in the world, there are links to buy it at 15 minutes happinesscom and you can even get the audiobook for free through a free trial at Audible. Again, click the link that's on the site and soak up some positive and happy vibes, people, and I'll speak to you again in what will seem like no time at all. Take care, folks. Bye.